family. Now we start a new sermon series today in the book of Judges called Hollow Heroes. Yep, Judges. We're going there. Not exactly the most heartwarming book of the Bible, I know. I know, I know. But you know what? We need to learn from the book of Judges because it is a cautionary tale of what happens when believers abandon God. Now, the book of Judges forces us to face the fact that we need heroes. We need a hero to rescue us from our sin, and we are really, 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 really bad at picking good heroes. Our heroes that we pick are hollow. Do you want to mean by that? They look strong on the outside, but they have no substance on the inside. They claim that they can save us, but they don't have the power to save us. They're hollow heroes. Judges magnifies God's faithfulness to us by actually highlighting how detestable our sin is. And so therefore, the language of Scripture is salty at times. And the stories are pretty gruesome in the book of Judges. If you have elementary age kids in your family, I'd really suggest you'd make use of our children's ministry uh, for the next couple months during this series. That's one way that we're serving you and serving the families. With all that said, please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land, and I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, and you shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns on your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lift up their voice, lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went down after other gods, from among gods of the peoples who were around them. And bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Soon they turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. This is the Lord of the Lord. 
Thank you, Niels. Family, let's pray. Faithful God, we come into your presence needing to hear from you. We need to hear you talk to us today. And God, as I've been kind of looking over my life this year, I am thankful for the, your faithfulness to me. If it had not been for your mercy, we'd be consumed. And so thank you for how faithful you are to us as your people. Continue to chase after us, continue to pursue us, and turn our hearts towards you. Do your work your way today. Help me speak clearly, boldly, and helpfully. Help what I say be pleasing to you and only to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In the 1980s, there was this anti-drug uh, commercial that I still, still remember to this day. Uh, the visual was, and you guys may have seen this or remember this, the visual was a, it was a slow motion, close-up shot of a young man who's sweating in anguish as he's running away from a policeman. And the policeman, his hand is getting closer and closer and closer until he finally grabs the man, grabs his shirt. And there's this child's voiceover over this visual. You hear a child say, I want to be a track star when I grow up. Uh, I want to be a ballerina when I grow up. I want to be a nurse when I grow up. And then we hear the voice of an adult, someone who's older now. It says, nobody says they want to be a junkie when they grow up. And of course, the subtext to that is, but it can happen to you if you play with drugs. I'm 30 years older as I reflect back on that 15-second ad. And I think the reason that it's stuck in my memory is that there's this iron, uh, kind of an ironclad logic to it. If you think about it, it's true. It's actually true. When I was a little boy, I never once dreamt of being a junkie when I grew up. Like, that is never a goal that I was aiming my life at. But as a man, looking back over 30 years of living and choices that I made, I now realize that I could have been. I get to see that. And you could just substitute junkie for something else in there. I could have been a lot of things had it not been for the grace of God in my life. Easily. See, guys, we tend to think that bad stuff only happens to a certain kind of person. And we're not that kind of person. So that could never happen to us. We are too careful, we're too educated, we're too strong, we're too mentally tough to ever let that happen to us. That can't happen to us. That happens to other kinds of people, and we're not that kind of people. Are you guys tracking with me? Nobody actually believes that their life can descend into chaos until it happens. We live with this belief, myself included, that we're all invincible to chaos. We just gotta, we're just going to go through life bulletproof. That can't stick to us. We're invincible to chaos until our life blows up, or our marriage blows up, or our church blows up, or our career blows up. And then we all say the same thing. When we're standing among the wreckage that is our life, we all inevitably ask the same question, how did it get to this point? Well, 
When someone dies, tragically, an autopsy is done on the body. An autopsy is supposed to determine the cause of death and the manner of death, right? An autopsy answers the question, how did this death happen? How did it get to this point? And that's what the opening chapters of the book of Judges is. This is like the prelude to the play that we're about ready to watch. We're looking at an autopsy report of an apostate community, guys. People who once believed in God, they claimed the name of God, but have abandoned him. They've repudiated by their life everything they said. So the report of the opening chapters of this autopsy would read like this. How to abandon God for a life of chaos. Here's your step-by-step process of how that happens. How to abandon God for a life of chaos. Brothers and sisters, we need to see what went wrong with Israel so that we can humbly and honestly identify those things and correct those things in ourself and in this faith community. We need to see the seeds of abandoning God, the nature of that abandonment, and the fruit of abandoning God. The seeds, the nature, and the fruit. Let's get into it. First of all, the seeds cohabitating with idols is the seed of chaos. Cohabitating with idols is the seed of chaos. Let's go right to the text here, verses 1 through 3. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you've done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. That means a trap. God told Israel to go into the promised land. We've got to get a little bit of backstory on what's going on here, okay? Because we didn't go through Joshua. God told Israel, go into the promised land and dispossess the Canaanites that live in that land. If the Canaanites did not leave the land, Israel was to destroy everything that remained, especially the places of worship and the idols that were there in the towns, the idols that the people served. And God did this as an act of judgment against the Canaanites because of all the detestable and deplorable deeds that they had done for hundreds and hundreds of years. And God did it in a way that the Canaanites would clearly know that they were being judged by the true living God and not mistakenly think it was some other gods that were mad at them. He wanted to do it in a way that they would get the message clearly. And so for the most part, for the most part, Israel obeyed God's command. But in chapter 1 and 2 of Judges, we find out that Israel did not completely obey the Lord. Look at chapter 1. Verse 29 and 30. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, nor the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. 
Each tribe of Israel let some of the nations live among them in their land and let their altars to their false gods intact in the cities. And they would walk by and they would see this every day. They bound themselves, they committed themselves to Canaanites through covenant agreements with them instead of driving them out. They profited off of them by putting them to forced labor. And these are all things God said do not do. God was very clear. Remove them and their gods from your presence and destroy even the reminders of their false gods that are left behind and then you can settle in the land. Clear the land and then you can settle in the land. This total dispossession served two fundamental purposes. First of all, it was a judgment against the wicked Canaanites. But secondly, it was protection for Israel. God does not want his people to worship other gods or idols because they will only bring enslavement again to his people. And he just said, I brought you out of slavery. I set you free to be free indeed. And I don't want you going back into slavery. So do this. I want you to notice that when God confronts his people with the refusal to completely obey him, he starts off by reminding him, reminding them of his grace, of all that he's done for them, that he's the God that brought them out of slavery and done good to them their whole life. God is basically saying this, why would you want to bind yourself to false gods and cohabitate with them? Like, why would you not want to drive them out completely from your life and leave no trace like I told you to? Your partial obedience is insane. It makes no sense. And partial obedience is disobedience to God. See, when God says this phrase, what is this that you have done? God's not asking for an answer. Like, God knows. When he says that phrase, it, it, it is, he's not asking something. He is saying something. It's like when a parent walks into the house and they see what their kid did and they put their hand over their mouth. Like, what is this you've done? That's what it is. It's the, by the way, it's the exact same phrase that God says to Adam and Eve. It's word for word the same when they were in the garden and they rebelled against God. God is letting his people know that they have no idea of what they're doing to themselves by disobeying his voice. They don't even know what they're doing. You see, there's something that, that God is very clear about. He doesn't want you and I to worship false gods. Not even a little bit. He does not want us to make compromises with idols, not even a little bit. God is, not letting, his, God is letting his people know they have no idea what they're doing. He doesn't want us tolerating sin in any crack, in any crevice in our life. But what do you and I tend to do? What's our natural tendency in bent? Well, we're like Israel, aren't we? We partially obey God. We, we mostly obey God, don't we? I do. Mostly is good enough. Right? I mean, we get rid of the big sins in our life and we tolerate and accommodate the little sins, quote-unquote, little sins, little secret sins. 
the little hidden sins that nobody else really knows about, just I know about and God knows about? Because we reason in our mind, uh, they're not that big of a deal. So what harm could they really do to us? What harm could they really do to our marriage? What harm could they really do to our kids? What harm could they really do? They're little, little things, right? And that makes sense. Guys, here's the principle. Listen to me. Cohabitating with idols is the seed of chaos. Cohabitating with idols is the seed of chaos. An idol, by the way, is anything that we love or we trust more than the God who has saved us. Okay? It's not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a bad thing. But not necessarily. It can be a good thing that we've just made into our ultimate thing. Does that make sense? So we typically don't bow down and serve physical idols of stone and gold and wood, do we? But we do serve idols of the heart. I guess maybe sometimes they're made out of metal, with steering wheels. Hmm. For example, we may say something like this, God, you are my God alone. All that I have belongs to you except my money. Because that's my money that I worked for. Money lets me do all the things that I enjoy. Money gives me freedom to come and go as I please. And so you, you won't get a hold of my money. 99% of my heart has been conquered by you. It's been cleared out by you, oh God, but I'm going to leave and, and, and cohabitate with the idol of money in my heart because it's not that big a deal. Or maybe we need people's approval. That's mine. God, you are my God alone, and I trust in you, but I can't tolerate people being disappointed in me and upset with me. So I'm going to serve the idol of approval because it's just too painful to dispossess that from my heart. So I'm just going to learn to live with that. That's just me. I know you said remove it, but I won't do it. I won't do it. Or maybe it's this, you know, I know I should not be in this relationship. I know we're doing things in this relationship that you've said do not do. But if I do relationships your way, God, no one will want to be with me. If I do relationships your way, I'll be alone forever. And I can't handle that. That's too painful for me. I can't remove this romantic relationship from my life, so I won't do it. I hope you understand so I partially obeyed you, though. God declares, brothers and sisters, that whatever idol we refuse to dispossess from our heart will become a snare for us. It will. It will. It will be an area of your life that the enemy will use to defeat you because he has a foothold now in your life. Does this make sense? And I don't want you to be fooled by that. Don't fool yourself. Cohabitating with idols is the seed of chaos. And I love you, so I'm going to ask you some questions. I want you to answer in, in your own heart. Are there sinful desires or sinful behaviors that you know you need to drive out of your heart and out of your life, but you won't do it?
you've learned to live with them instead and just manage around it. You say things like this, that's just my personality, that's just the way God made me, so it's okay. That's just the way that I was raised, that's just the way we do it here, so it's okay. God is telling you that you need to stop cohabitating with idols today. Today. Maybe there is something, or maybe there's someone that your heart delights in more than the Lord, but you won't dispossess it from your heart. Instead, you're worshiping it, and you are literally expecting God to just understand. I mean, you're tolerant. Maybe God should be more tolerant. God says, listen, that will be something that later will defeat you, and it will oppress you, and it will chain you down. And he doesn't want that for you. He wants good for you. Either you conquer sin or it conquers you. It's a zero-sum game with sin. And it doesn't take Saturdays off. You need to know that. You need to get rid of it from your heart today. You need to tell that to the Lord and ask for his help. So what is the nature of, of abandoning God. Like, what does this actually look like from God's perspective looking down into the situation? Well, that's the second point. Abandoning God is a betrayal in his eyes. Let's look at verses 10 through 13. And all that generation were also gathered to the fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. One generation. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't evil in the sight of people, because Judges is going to say this over and over, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. Right? It was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, that had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among the gods, of the people who were around them and bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So you see, a turning away from one is a turning to the other. Do you see that in the text? You don't do one without the other. I don't know if you've noticed this, but God has a very different definition of good and evil than we do. Have you guys noticed that? And and, and you know what? In the end, it's God's definition of evil and good. That's the only definition that really matters. And so here's the thing, family. If we are going to see reality correctly, then we must see things from God's point of view. We need to get his glasses on our face to see these things correctly. When we look at Israel worshiping the idols of the other nations, we go, what's the big deal? What is the big deal, God? What are you so bent out of shape about? So they say a prayer to the Baals, and then they say a prayer to you. So what? They show affection to a few other idols, and then on Saturday they show some affection to you. They throw a little affection your way on Saturday. Everybody wins. What are are you upset about, God? But God wants to correct our vision of the situation by putting it in context of covenant, the covenant that he's made with people. 
God has undeniably shown his people that his supremacy is the one true God. He's rescued his people from slavery all by himself, by the way. He's part of the Red Sea, given them bread from heaven, water from rocks. He's fed them, he's clothed them, he's sustained their life every day of their life. And then God entered into an exclusive and covenantal relationship with his people and he swore his undying love to them and they did the same to him. That was the covenant. I will be your God, you will be my people, and the people said amen. We will do that. That sounds good to us. And yet here they are pouring out their affection to gods that cannot see them, cannot hear them, cannot love them, and cannot act on their behalf. And God uses this phrase here, whoring after other gods. And he uses that language, and that's the mildest, by the way, that's used. He uses that language so that we will see this situation correctly. It's to wake us up a little bit, perk our ears up a little bit. Israel's not accidentally made a mistake. They've not merely broken a random rule. They have severed and damaged a relationship. This is personal, and this is intentional. Israel's deliberately doing things to seduce the favor of other gods and they're doing it right in front of the face of God in broad daylight. They're doing it on purpose, not out of a mistake. It is the equivalent to God as marital unfaithfulness. That's how God sees it. It, it, It's basically what they're saying is this, look, I know we made a vow, I know I belong to you and only you, but I'm going to be physically intimate with someone else during the week in hopes that they will love me instead of you. I hope you're okay with that. There's a slap of betrayal against the one who loves us when we commit spiritual adultery. And from God's perspective, it's a big deal. It's a big deal to give any amount of affection or trust or praise to something other than him. And why? Why? Because we are in a covenant relationship with him. That's an exclusive relationship. Our trust and affection should be only directed to him. To have an affair with other gods is a betrayal against the God who loves us and sustains us and has rescued us from slavery. It's not making a mistake. It's not something that just kind of happened to us by accident. It's deliberately abandoning and damaging a relationship with God to get other gods to love us and get other gods to take care of us, make us feel good. Guys, we need to see living with sin and worshiping idols as whoring after other gods. Otherwise, we'll never avoid it and we'll never repent of it when we see that happening in our own soul. Thirdly, we need to see the fruit of abandoning God. This is verses 14 and 15. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, The hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. 
Now, some people have a problem with God being angry over our sin against him. And they know that verse that says, well, God is love. God is love. Therefore, it's wrong for God to be angry when we sin against him. But is that true? Is that true? Think about it. Just for, think a little bit longer about it. Is that actually true? Is anger really the opposite of love? Or is anger the evidence of true and deep love for someone? See, God is angry with our sin because he knows that all the other gods and idols that we give our trust and affection to are only going to hurt us. You know this if you're married. You know this if you're a parent. You get mad when your children or your spouse does something that hurts themselves because you love them. Otherwise, you say, I don't care what you do. He knows that they're only going to promise us freedom but only keep us in chains. They're going to promise us power but only oppress us. They're going to promise us companionship but they're just going to abuse us in that relationship. And he knows that so he gets upset about it because he loves us, because he cares what happens to us. There comes a point when we're so intent on pursuing the idols of our heart that God just, he just stops wasting his breath because he's like, you're not listening anyway. And he hands us over to them. And that's what God's doing here. In effect, God says this, look, here. Here, you want your job to be your God instead of me? You want this person, you want this relationship to be your God instead of me? Fine. Fine. You, you want to bind yourself to them? Fine. I'll walk you down the aisle myself. And I'll give you away. I'll give you what you really want the most because it's the only way you're going to see that they don't really care about you. They don't care what happens to you. They don't think about you. I do. I love you. But that's the only way you're going to see this. It's come to this point. It's come to this point. See, the fruit of abandoning God is that we are plundered by the very things that we pursue, pursue, the very idols that we pursue. We think that they'll love us. We think they'll respect us for cohabitating with them, for being tolerant of them, but in the end, they'll rob us naked. naked. They'll afflict us. They'll afflict our mind. They'll afflict our soul. They always demand more. I want more time. I want more love. I want more energy. You gotta do more work for me, and they give us very little. All gods are very demanding. But I want you to see something else, family. I want you to see that there's a glimmer of hope in this passage. I'm going to try every week to look for hope in Judges, as hard as I can. And there is a little sliver of hope, and I want to point it out to you, okay? You ready? Here it is. Judges 2, verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved by pity, by their groanings, because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. And this cycle is going to be repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated throughout the book of Judges. They're going to go through this, but it's going to be a spiral. It's going to get worse and worse. They're going to get more and more depraved. It's going to get harder and harder, and God's going to save them again and again. We'll see this throughout the book of Judges. 
And these judges are not judges like you and I typically think of. These are not like people that wear like gowns and they have a gavel and they're judicial. They make decisions and rulings. These are military leaders that come in and they throw off the oppressors and run them out of town. That's what, they, except Deborah. She's the only exception. She's a prophetess and she gives ju- judgments like that. She's actually the one ex- good example in the book of Judges. We'll get to that later. But here's the point. We need to see the great faithfulness of God to his people here. God did not leave his people just tasting the fruit of their sin. Rather, God sent judges to rescue his people from their oppressors, the very oppressors that he sent, that he handed them over to. Isn't that amazing? So I gotta stop this cycle. The scripture says that God was moved with pity because of their groanings. Now get this, guys. This just magnifies how compassionate God is. You ready? Israel wasn't repenting when they were groaning. It doesn't say that, right? It just says they were groaning. It doesn't say they were crying out to God for help. They turned their back on God. They don't care about God. It just says they were crying. This really hurts. My life is blown up. I wish things were different. But they weren't talking to God about any of that. It just says they were crying about it. Yet God was so moved with pity that he saw that how they were hurting themselves. He says, I can't take it anymore. I know this is what you deserve, but I'm going to stop this. I can't look at your hurt anymore. So I'm going to enter into it. I'm going to interrupt it because I love you enough. I'll cut it short. He steps in to stop their suffering by sending a hero to save them, a judge that would defeat their enemies, and they'd have rest for a while, then they'd go back to doing it again, and he'd send another hero. See, the book of Judges does not only confront us with the depths of our spiritual adultery, but it also reveals that God's faithfulness to us goes deeper than our adultery. Isn't that great? God is the only God who will keep covenant with us though we keep breaking covenant with him. He swore that he would do this, right? God is the only God who is determined to rescue people that are determined to destroy themselves. There's not another God like that. That's what all the other gods are like. Fail that God who is your career. Fail that God who is your spouse or that boyfriend and just you watch what they do to you. God's not like them. He's the one true God. You and I will not feel any kind of need to abandon sin, and I mean all our sins, until we get a picture of how ugly and painful it is to ourselves and to those that are around us, because they've got to live with the carnage too. There's always two victims in sin. But you know what? We will not feel the need to trust Christ with our whole heart until we see how faithful he is to us, even though we break our covenant repeatedly. He's so faithful to us. He never stops loving us. And my hope, guys, for this series is that God would be pleased to do three things in the life of our church through this series. That he'd reveal the false heroes that we are all currently trusting. And I told you one of mine, and I'd love to hear what one of yours is that he'd reveal the false heroes we're currently trusting, and he'd remove them from our heart, and he'd replace it with affection for Christ himself. Will you pray with me in the upcoming weeks that that will actually happen? A couple of you will? Thanks. (laughs) 
will you pray with me that God would reveal? See, you can't remove something you don't see, right? And that's the hard part looking at it. That God would reveal, he would remove, and he would replace. Guys, I want you to get this. In his compassion, God sent hero after hero to rescue his stubborn people from their chains of idolatry and the affliction that it brings. But all those heroes were meant to point us to Jesus, who was the final and the ultimate and the best hero of them all. Who has loved us like Jesus? Who has loved you like him? Who has been so faithful to us like God? There is no one. That's why we sing the kind of songs we sing to him. There is no God like our God. And so let's remove the idols of our heart and let's give him all of our love and all of our affection with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength to the glory of God. Let's do that, Crossway. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. God, thank you for your faithfulness to us. I believe that we're at the beginning of something important in the life of our church. God, I don't want to preach cute messages. I want you to move. I want you to work and change people's lives. You have good for us. You have love for us. You have hope for us. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would remove the veils that blind us from you and that you would help us behold the glory of God, the faithfulness of our God, the goodness of our God. And thank you that you don't quit on us. Make the changes that are necessary. Set us free. In Jesus' name we pray for his glory and honor. Amen.